Well, good day, everyone, and a very happy new year to you, wherever you're listening to this. I hope that um, you are well, your family are well, and that you have a good year, regardless of what happens. It's just me today, the Rev J.A. Franklin, uh, my co-host, having a bit of time off, so I hope that's not too disappointing. This isn't a normal show as such. This is kind of a, a, a special New Year's episode where I'd like to offer some reflections upon the last year. haven't really written this. This isn't really a sermon as such, but I've put a sort of outline together and, and hopefully I'll say some some interesting things. So reflecting on the new year as we enter January, of course, relates to the god Janus looking back to the past and what's happened, looking forward to the future. I'd like to begin by just talking about a poem by Thomas Hardy called The Darkling Thrush, Thrush which, was, um, which was written, um, or at least it was released on the, uh, the, at the turn of the 20th century on the 1st of January. And uh, Thomas Hardy uh, describes this, this scene, which will be very familiar to any British person. Um, I leaned upon a coppice gate when frost was spectre grey and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. He, he describes this cold, grim, bare scene, uh, which, is, which is very, uh, very much uh, the way things are. In in England at this time, I'm actually in my outside office at the moment, and it's so cold at the moment that I'm draped in a blanket, sitting next to a, a, a portable radiator. The sun is setting already, and it's only ten past three. Anyway, whilst whilst Thomas Hardy is standing outside in this in this grey, uh, barren, uh, rural setting, he says, "At once, a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead." In a full-hearted evensong of joy limited, an aged thrush, frail, gaunt and small, in blast beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the glowing gloom. So a thrush starts singing, singing something joyful. And then Hardy continues, So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things, afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. That's Hardy's reflection at the turn of the 20th century. It really seems like there is no hope. It really seems like the earth is barren and grey and that things are going nowhere. And yet a bird sings, and maybe this bird has some kind of hope that Hardy is unaware of. I find that to be quite a sobering reflection in these times, and I'll come back to this later, but it seems to me that as a Christian, it's my job to be like that thrush, to be someone who brings joy into the world because I have hope which other people are unaware of, and especially that seems relevant at this time. The fact is that as we look back upon the past year, we see something which none of us really ever expected, really the breakdown of our entire way of life. We have been consigned to our homes. We are currently basically all in our country in in another in another lockdown. There is no there is no sense that it's about to end. We have this vague prospect of a vaccine that will be rolled out, but no real guarantee that that will work or that will bring about a return to our old way of life and it really does seem like darkness and gloom are 
approaching and many people feel a great sense of hopelessness, even people who are Christians, which I do understand. I think that I am worried that there is a new technocracy which is emerging. It is quite clear that uh, governments and politicians are very funny, very hard to govern and that things like the SAGE Committee are, are taking on a kind of uh, political role where, whereby because they are viewed as the, the, the sort of arbitrators of all uh, reality, they are the ones who are calling the shots and, and making all the decisions. But really, uh, what's happened over the past year, I think it's fair to say, has been driven by massive levels of uh, propaganda uh, that's for some reason been uh, propagated by the mainstream media. It's not something that I can really understand. Um, but there has been a concerted effort ever since March by the mainstream media to make the coronavirus crisis seem as, as, as terrible as they possibly can and to scare people as much as they possibly can into accepting the draconian um, diktats of our, of our governments. Um, this is this is fundamentally changing the nature of our society. I'm sure you've you've heard of people who have been uh, accosted and 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 um, shouted at in the street, for example, for for not wearing their masks. Uh, this happened to somebody very close to me. Where it's happened to this person twice, and has happened again very recently. I would say that our society is is gradually, but but quite quickly, really becoming more fearful, more suspicious, uh, more divided, and certainly more atomized as we are c continually subjected to this uh, propaganda, scared out of our wits, and told to obey the the unelected technocrats who seem to have unlimited power over us. Now, what is going to happen next year? I have absolutely no idea. But I do think that the effects of all of this are going to be catastrophic. Indeed, I think they already are catastrophic, but we have failed to, to see that. Perhaps if there is some kind of widespread economic crash, then this might become more obvious to people. But I think because the because the uh, the mainstream media has been so pervasive in in pushing the the mainstream message that the government want them to push i think the majority of people have not actually woken up to the severe and and really serious implications of uh, what what the government have been doing to our society for the last 9 months now it's a very interesting question to ask how this has happened at all. And as I've said, I think it's to do with the, with the mainstream media and, and, and the, the ubiquitous pushing of this message. But one of the things that I find perplexing, and I've thought about it a lot, is how, how people with a social conscience have, have not raised their voices. In fact, it does seem like people who would be traditionally associated with the left have um have wholeheartedly uh, in, endorsed and embraced the need to have these continual uh, lockdowns which are which are clearly damaging so many people in terms of people losing their jobs in terms of people's businesses being needlessly destroyed in terms of uh, old people in old folks homes and other people who are isolated being uh, being left alone for months and months and months with no human contact 
uh, in terms of very essential health care being denied to people, cancer screening and treatment being a very obvious one, but many others as well. It's just it's so obvious it's doing such catastrophic damage to people. And you don't even have to you don't even have to look for statistics. You can just you can just talk to people. You can just see the evidence of your senses that this is so terribly damaging for people, terribly, terribly bad for people. Uh, suicide rates have, have risen as well. I know I know people have committed suicide this year. Uh, I'm sure many of my listeners do as well. So why do people with social consciences, such as those on the left claim to have, why do they seem to be completely oblivious to the consequences of the government's actions um, over the past nine months? Why do they keep on calling for more of these terribly cruel and catastrophic, catastrophically damaging uh, lockdowns. Now, I don't really know, but I do have some idea. And I, I'd like, by way of talking about this, to quote from a C.S. Lewis book I, I read recently, uh, That Hideous Strength. One of the main characters is called Mark, and he's an academic sociologist. And at one point, Lewis, as the narrator, comments that Mark's education has had the effect of, quote, making things that he read and wrote more real to him than things he saw, end quote. And I think the point is, is that when we consider the life that is before us, we understand something of its value. When we understand the evidence of our of our senses as significant ethically, we then can draw rational and ethical conclusions from those things. But if we only think about things abstractly, if we only think about things in terms of abstract ideals, we turn ourselves into ethical monsters who have no real understanding of the collateral damage of our political or philosophical ideas. We can sweep away whole communities in our pursuit of a positive outcome, not realising that what grows up in a human society does so organically as we pass from generation to generation, that which is valuable to us and that which has embellished our home and our home, sorry, and our society in general. The point is, is that we've allowed ourselves to be captivated by a series of abstract speculations which have no basis at all in empirical reality. The, the graphs, the, the doom-mongering statistics, the predictions, the models, these things are not real. They are not real. They may be an attempt to, to touch some sort of reality. They may be an attempt to describe or predict some kind of reality, but they are not real. They are invented things. They come from men's minds. What is real is the flesh and blood experiences of human beings, our, our hopes, our joys, our fears, things which hurt us, things which make us happy, things which truly heal and save us. Those things are real. These graphs, these models, these predictions, these are not real. These are abstract speculations which are plonked upon us. They're sort of, they're sort of, they sort of fall out of the sky onto our heads and they are given to us in order to try and manipulate our reality, to manipulate our understanding of the real world. 
We need to get back to a situation in our society where we use our senses, where we literally use our physical senses, where we look at what's in front of us and we feel revulsion or we feel joy and we say, yes, that's bad and yes, that's good. I think personally that there has been a precedent in the abortion industry for what's going on now because what's going on in an abortion is a baby is being killed now sometimes that baby is is less developed sometimes that baby is more developed um i don't know if my my listeners know this but in our country in the uk it's legal to um to abort a, a child up to term if the child has down syndrome now can you imagine watching a child being aborted at 35 weeks at 35 weeks a child looks like a baby a normal baby that is born at a, at a normal time can you imagine what that would look like now if we were to if we were to watch this if we were to involve ourselves with this process i think it would be far harder for us to maintain that abortion is some kind of uh, intrinsic right and the the denial of which is 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 um ethically transgressive i think what we would see is we would see the reality of abortion the reality which our senses give to us which is that children are being killed children are being killed that is the reality now there may be reasons for this but generally speaking in our society we don't accept the killing of children so why do we do so when we think about abortion now, the point here I'm making is this is yet another, this is an example rather of this kind of ideal abstract speculation where we have this idea of, say, equality, and we want to impose that idea onto society. And so we say, well, how can we get equality for women? Women want to be sexually liberated, but they also want to be to be free to work and to pursue opportunities in life. Therefore, we must have abortion. We impose an abstract ideal onto the reality of the situation. And who suffers? Well, of course, it's the children who suffer. It's the children who are killed. And I would say it's also the women who have these abortions because abortion, I believe, damages you at a, at a deep emotional, psychological and, and spiritual level. I think there's probably good evidence that it's physically extremely damaging as well because it's such an unnatural and violent intrusion of uh, of a of our bodily uh, of a woman's bodily integrity i should say uh, it also damages the people around of course the fathers whose children are are killed and the relatives uh, of and friends of those who are involved as well and indeed the doctors who perform these unspeakable acts the point being that we've turned our eyes aside from these activities for such a long time uh, because of these, these sort of idealism, this abstract speculation, which makes them possible, and I think that these, this issue with with COVID, with with the lockdowns, with the terrible damage it's doing, is is a manifestation of a similar phenomenon. C.S. Lewis has this amazing essay in a book uh, of, of his writings called a collection of his writings called God in the Dark. And it's called Is Progress Possible? And I really think that uh, anyone listening to this, I'd recommend uh, you should read it. Um, it's an astonishingly prescient essay for what, what we're going through now, in which Lewis predicts a worldwide technocracy, which is set up in the name of science, of course, and the meeting of men's needs. 
Now, the key sentence, I think, for our times may be when C.S. Lewis says this, quotation, Let the doctor tell me I shall die unless I do so and so, but whether life is worth having on those terms is no more a question for him than for any other man. Let the doctor tell me I shall die unless I do so and so, but whether life is worth having on those terms is no more a question for him than for any other man. And here we have the distinction between a democratic and free society such as we used to have, where scientists, doctors and whomever would simply advise politicians, to the kind of technocracy that we're moving into, where the scientist, where the doctor actually makes the political decisions for us. They used to be advisors competent in one area, some kind of area of science. Now they are the experts who, even though they've not been elected, they're the ones who make the decisions. They're the ones who tell us what kind of life is worth living. Now, the point Lewis is making is that scientists can tell us about science, but not what constitutes a good for man or humanity. That's what politics is about. He goes on to say that the price we must pay for an omnicompetent global technocracy overseeing a world welfare state could be losing all personal privacy and independence. Now, that's a that's a summary of what he says, but this is this is literally what he says. And it's so relevant. The price we must pay for an and this is a quotation, an omnicompetent global technocracy overseeing a world welfare state could be, quotation, losing all personal privacy and independence. And this, this, my dear listeners, is really what I fear. I fear that we are moving towards a situation in which we will have a global technocracy overseeing a world welfare state. And part of that uh, part of that situation will be that we will lose all personal privacy and independence in the name of public health massive levels of surveillance, massive levels of infringement of personal liberty, all of which has been set up as a precedent by what has happened over the course of 2020. Now, all of this will include, of course, losing the right to refuse medical treatments and interventions if one does not want them. And I am very worried about this as time goes on. Now, I'll say something about the about the concept of worry in a moment. So I don't want to sound like I'm just freaking out, but this is a, these things are a concern for me. Let's have another quote from this essay. To live his life in his own way, to call his house his castle, to enjoy the fruits of his own labour, to educate his children as his conscience directs, to save for their prosperity after his death. These are wishes deeply ingrained in civilised man. From their total frustration, disastrous results, both moral and psychological, might follow. From their total frustration, from the taking away of our liberty, from the denial of the integrity of our being, disastrous results, both moral and psychological, might follow. And this is what I fear in the year to come. I fear that this has already happened, moral and psychologically disastrous results. And I feel I fear that more of these terrible things are going to happen as we go forward into the future. I don't know why this has happened. I don't know why all the governments of the West, with one or two exceptions, seem to be 
acting in lockstep in imposing these dreadful lockdowns and draconian laws such as the enforced wearing of masks in uh, public spaces. Why is this happening? Is there some kind of technocratic um, organisation that is behind this, some kind of coordination? Or is it merely a convergence of opportunism that organisations like the WF and the WHO People like Klaus Schwab have seen that this is their opportunity to impose the globalist technocracy that they desire upon our civilizations. I don't know, but I am sure that people are using this situation in order to bring about these these um, conceptually significant political changes. And we did an episode a while ago in which um, we spoke about The Great Reset, which is a book that Klaus Schwab, who's the head of the WF, has written himself and published in which he says that he wants to utilise this crisis as an opportunity for him to bring about his technocratic uh, political agenda. He wants to, he wants to, I would say the subtext of the of of what he says is that he wants to really exaggerate the crisis of the coronavirus in order to bring about his political ends. He admits in the book towards the end that the the crisis is not um, significant when you compare it to other uh, plagues and uh, outbreaks of uh, things like cholera or the Black Death. But he nevertheless wants to fundamentally reshape our civilization in his own image. He suggests uh, that we should start referring to the the time before coronavirus as BC and to the time afterwards as AC. So literally making the coronavirus into a kind of messianic event which which splits the timeline, which which shows you um, shows you the kind of agenda that he has, which is you know a really kind of pseudo uh, religious agenda. And this leads me to the the main sort of reflection that I have today. Um, there are three key statistics which I would like to share before going into the next section. And and the first the first statistic is this: is that the recovery rate for people who contract coronavirus is something like ninety nine point seven to ninety nine point nine percent. So the vast majority of people who get this virus. Do not die from it. Um, the second statistic is this, that it's been widely reported recently that in England, I think it is, it might be the UK, but I think it's in England, the amount of people who are under 60 and who were healthy, who have died of the coronavirus, is 388. Thirdly, the average age of death for people with coronavirus is 83. The average age of death in the UK in general is 82. Now, the point I'm making is not that it's not significant when people die of coronavirus or anything else. The point I'm making is not that we should simply expose people who might be vulnerable to the coronavirus. The point I'm making is that this alleged pandemic is nowhere near as dangerous or significant as has been made out by the media. It is nowhere near as significant and it does not justify the chaos and damage that has been wreaked in its name. I've got no idea why governments keep on doing this. I, I really don't. You can explain it in terms of incompetence, you can explain it in terms of 
trying to cover their backs. You can explain it in terms of a kind of uh, sort of collective peer pressure, sociopathic behaviour, orchestrated and coordinated uh, technocratic takeover. I don't know. But the one thing I am sure of is that one cannot say rationally, in my view, that this is a proportionate response to the threat of the coronavirus. The very idea of a lockdown was said by um, Professor Neil Ferguson himself, one of the chief technocrats, um, to be something that was imported from China, taken an idea taken from the despicable Chinese Communist Party and uh, employed in our nation. Ferguson said that he didn't think he'd be even able to get away with it because it was so draconian and was taken from that terrible uh, regime. But alas, they were. Something has happened. We are we have fallen under a collective uh, delusion, a collective spell almost. It's like our whole society has been bewitched. And what we need in this coming new year, and something that I'll be praying for, is repentance. In the literal New Testament meaning of the word, metanoia, we need a change of mind. When I go on Twitter sometimes and I see people calling for more lockdowns, I see people saying that schools should be shut again. I, call, I see people calling for businesses to be shut down. The implication of which, of course, being that people lose their jobs, people will lose their livelihoods. When I see these things, I think you must have gone crazy. We've been trying these things for nine months and they clearly don't make any difference. They don't make any difference and things are getting worse. And I'm sure many people have heard the the um, the widely uh, the widely uh, quoted uh uh, or sorry, the quote which is widely attributed to uh, Einstein, although it's, it's probable that he didn't say it, which is that the first sign of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The difficulty here being that we're not just doing the same thing over and over again, is that we're doing something which is so damaging to people over and over again. And there is literally no evidence that it works, no evidence whatsoever. And yet we keep doing it over and over again in the hope that it might. This is madness. We have been bewitched. We have come under a spell and we need metanoia. We need the humility to say, come on, guys, we've made a big mistake here. We need to stop this. We need to we need to go back to the way that things were. Yeah, they weren't perfect, but at least we could travel about freely and see our family members and our friends and, and operate businesses and, and have jobs and have uh, community interests and have normal lives. We had a healthcare system. All right, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. And, and people people were treated for cancer and heart disease and all of these things. We We had a functioning society, but our society is being shut down. For what Sinatra Gupta described as a, a third-rate pandemic. Metanoia. Change your mind. This is crazy. We need a change of mind for the government. And we also, I would say, need a change of mind for the church. Because we need to find our prophetic voice as a church. As Christians, we need to start speaking out against this much more than we already have been. This is a, an autocratic regime which is destroying our society and our civilization, ruining millions of lives. 
This is being imposed upon us by technocratic elites who are not sacrificing anything in order to deploy their agenda. And we have to realise that we've embraced a godless regime with an attendant godless metaphysics, a secular metaphysics, a metaphysics that has no place for God or the spiritual world, and an anthropology which is similarly godless. One of the technocrats, I think it was Patrick Vallance, said recently that everyone should consider themselves to be infected and to act accordingly. This is a, a repugnant anthropology from a Christian perspective. It is repugnant to think that all we are as human beings is are vectors of infection, bags of germs just going around infecting other people, and not to acknowledge the inherent dignity of humanity. The fact that we are made in the image of God with our own sanctity, with our own holiness, with our own value, and with the need to have some kind of sociality, to have family life, to have community life, to form friendships and intimate relationships. No, the technocrats say, you're a bag of germs. You should just consider yourself to be infected. This anthropology is repugnant and antithetical to Christianity, and we must start challenging it. And so my prayer for this year is for metanoia. It's for widespread repentance from this folly, this foolishness, this madness that we have embraced. Now, the other thing I'd like to say alongside that is that we do need repentance as a society. But as individuals, we also need to have faith. And I'm speaking particularly for uh, Christians here, but you know, if if you're listening along and you're sympathetic, but you're you're not a Christian, perhaps it it, it relates to you in some way, in some way as well. Um, one of the most encouraging conversations I've had this year is the one which I released um, uh, with um, Carbon Mike. And Carbon Mike himself is not is not a, a Christian, as he says. He calls himself a, a a pilgrim, somebody who's who's on a journey. But he. I asked him what his message would be for Christians um, at this time. And I'd like to play out what he said. Long story short, the first thing is that, look, when, when, my, when my Christian friends say this to me, when they you know, start despairing, I say that you, if, especially if you're a Christian, you have no business despairing. Obviously. Because one, your religion was born in the shadow of a, of a, of a vast and cruel empire. Okay, it was born underground, under us, under the city, right? Under the city, under the civilization, under civis, right? And 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 look what that faith went on to do in the world. Look at the great things it went on to achieve in the world. What's you know the, the Roman Empire? I mean, there is still a Church of England, right? There is still a Roman Catholic Church. Is there a Roman Empire today? Okay, so who won that round? Right. That's one. Um, you know, you have to you have to actually step up and you're going to you're going to take some hits and that's fine. But fundamentally, you can't despair. And again, as Christians, you shouldn't despair. Jesus Christ, you worship a God that escaped from the grave. I mean, come on. What are you telling me? Yeah, literally, your, your guy got nailed to a structure. Huh? <laughs> you know, and and and, and came back <laughs> walking around talking to people. You know, and, and what? You, you, and you, oh, you, well, someone lost an election or someone tried to steal an election? What, are you kidding me? What, what is that?
Yeah, so what he's talking about there at the end is obviously the uh, the election in the US, but you could equally well use uh, the example of everything that I've been talking about uh, in order to, to make his point. Whatever is going on, we shouldn't despair. And this is absolutely key, and it's taken me half an hour to get to it, and, and for that I really apologise because I, I do like to rant. But this, I think it's been something that's been growing in my heart since March, I mean, to be honest with you, listeners, I've found this year really tough. I've had some really dark times. But I think I've come to a place where I realise now something of what Carbon Mike is talking about, is that if we believe and trust in Christ, the one who, as he said, escaped the grave, if we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, which birthed the church into the world, in the shadow of the Roman Empire, an obscure sect meeting in the catacombs. God did all this through that situation. If we believe these things, then what business have we with despair? We must have faith in Christ that whatever happens in this coming year, whatever happens, how, however dark it gets, however crazy, whatever happens, God has a purpose in this. Now, I grew up and I've had loads of experiences in churches where everyone's always talking about revival, revival this, revival that. And as I've, as I've um, studied and as I've learned, I mean, my, my, um, my doctoral work was about uh, secularism, for example. Um, I, I always found this to be sort of unconvincing because as far as I could see, Western civilization is not moving towards some kind of religious or Christian revival. It's, it's moving away from it into increasing embrace of secularism, secularism and, and materialism. So, yeah, we can pray for revival. We can hope for revival. But, yeah, you know, it's never really going to happen. But perhaps 2020 and what follows will change that. Because perhaps now, perhaps now, there is an opportunity for the gospel like never before. Now, I don't wish an economic crash on anyone. I don't wish joblessness on anyone. I don't wish atomization and existential despair upon anyone. But I think it's coming. I think it's already here for many, many people. And I think many, many people are looking into the future with abject horror because there is no hope, because we've been taken over by this technocratic regime who are destroying our lives, our society, our pecuniary safety, our material comfort and well-being. They're looking into the future with despair. And perhaps now, as this situation gets graver and darker as this year, and perhaps future years progress, perhaps now might be an opportunity for people to start crying out to God in faith and hope that there really is a God. Because you see, in Western civilization, we have become so comfortable, materially speaking. We live in beautiful houses. We eat incredible food. We have all the material comforts that we could possibly have, even those of us who are relatively poor. We have very, very comfortable lives. We have long lives, lives which are not, largely speaking, blighted by disease and pain and suffering. But perhaps as this changes, perhaps as our lives get much, much more difficult, much darker, much more blighted, perhaps a civilization, the very fabric of civilization crumbles. This might be an opportunity now for us to cry out to God and to ask for him to come back into our lives. 
I've been thinking a lot recently about a song I I remember from when I was a very, very young child. Um, it was a song and the lyrics were, there's going to be a great awakening. There's going to be a great revival in our lands. And this song has just been on my lips recently. I actually um, looked it up. It's by an artist called Tom Inglis. And um, I won't play it here for fear of for fear of um, transgressing some kind of copyright law. But I listened to it and I was deeply moved because something in me said, I don't know whether there's going to be a great revival in our land, a great awakening, but my heart hopes for it. My heart hopes for it. We can see where secularism leads us. We can see where godless materialism leads us. It just leads us to folly and misery and wickedness. And it will eventually destroy us. Our land needs to be revived. We need to turn our hearts to Jesus Christ so that we might live in him again, so that we might know the purpose for which we were created. Oh, that our land might be awakened to the glory of God and to the truth of the gospel and that we might put this folly behind us, that we might rediscover the reason for which we were created. And that Christ's name might be honoured once again. Will there be a great awakening? Will there be a great revival in our lands? Christians, let's hope that it will be so. Let's have faith that God has purposes now. Let's look for opportunities to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with those who are around us, to share the joy and the hope that we have in Christ. And here I come back to that little thrush in the Thomas hardy poem a little thrush sitting on a a bare tree in a dead wilderness singing for joy and hardy the atheist who hears it can't understand why friends let's be that thrush let's find our hope in christ let's find our joy in christ regardless of what the government does to us regardless of how long they lock us up for regardless of what they take away from us let's discover or let's rediscover the truth that christ is our greatest treasure let's find that treasure in the field that is worth selling all that we have in order to obtain do not be overcome by evil says the apostle paul but overcome evil with good. And that is what we must do. We must not be overcome by this evil that has taken over our civilization. but we must overcome it with good. We must overcome it with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And so one of my New Year's resolutions is to take note of something else the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians, where he writes, Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is gracious. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, I don't know if you're like I am, but I have spent far too much time allowing myself to be preoccupied with this folly, with this foolishness, to allow myself to become anxious to allow myself to become despondent and depressed far too much time. I've spent far too much time looking at this stuff on my phone, listening to these banal news conferences, speculating about this and that. Far too much time doing that kind of thing. 
and far too little preoccupying myself with all the many blessings and good things and mercies that God has given to me in my life. And if there's one thing I'm going to try and do this year, it's that I'm not going to allow my life to be dominated by this folly. But I am going to fix before my eyes the Lord Jesus Christ and all the many blessings that he gives to me. Not allow myself to be overwhelmed by negativity, by anxiety, by fear, by anger and unforgiveness, because we must learn to forgive and love those people who are hurting us even now. I watched that film that was uh, released on Netflix, or most of it anyway, The Social Net... Oh, sorry, it's called The uh, Social Dilemma. Sorry, The Social Network is something else. Social Dilemma, which is all about the way that social media companies are trying to manipulate you into giving phones and their websites as much attention as they possibly can. They have people, they have geniuses working around the clock to try and get you scrolling through your Facebook feed, scrolling through your Twitter feed, scrolling through your Instagram feed, mindlessly clicking from one thing to another so that endorphins can be released in your brain when little red icons and and blue ticks flash up. They are trying to get your attention. They are trying to preoccupy you. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what do we want to pay attention to? And how are we going to make sure that we pay attention to those things and not to the clamoring voices of our smartphones? I don't know what the answer is for you, but one of the answers for me certainly is to have my phone on airplane mode a lot more in the coming year. To not carry it around with me everywhere but to intentionally leave it somewhere where I won't look at it, where I won't use it, where I won't be thinking about it. Because they are literally trying to pre-program or rather reprogram my brain so that I need it, so that I need to keep looking at it, so that I need to keep scrolling through, trying to find some kind of positive note, some kind of chink of light somewhere, but no, just going from one thing to another. No, friends, I would have pay attention to something more edifying, I want to pay attention to something that's not going to make me feel tense and anxious and preoccupied. I want to pay attention to all the good things that God gives me in my life. And that's really something that I'm going to focus on this year. So that's it, really. I mean, the, the, it's, it's kind of a, a long rant. But to summarise, we need to believe in the gospel. I know that sounds obvious. We need to believe in the gospel. We need repentance. As individuals, we need to repent, turn from our folly, turn from our sin day by day, both people who are not Christians and people who are Christians. We need to repent. We need to change. We need to grow up. We need to listen to what God wants for us. And we need to have faith for the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I've got absolutely no idea where this crazy train is heading. But I do know that there is a God in heaven I do know that he rules and reigns over his creation. I do know that his son, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead and ascended to his right hand and that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I do know that God has a purpose for this time. And so I'm going to try and fix my eyes on that. I'm going to try and fix my eyes on that. And so I just want to say thank you to you for listening to this if you got to the end I really appreciate that 
do get in touch as always irreverendpod at gmail.com I try and reply to all the emails properly so sometimes it takes me a few days to, to be able to sit down and really engage with them but I love receiving your feedback and, and hearing from you I pray for you I pray for you people who, who write to me I, I really do I pray for you and I appreciate your prayers for me as well and um, let's look forward to the new year in hope I don't know when we're going to start up again um, properly maybe maybe next week maybe the, the week after but I'll look forward to doing that and so God bless you in 2021 your year might not be happy it might not be a happy new year it might not be a happy 2021 but I pray that it will be a blessed 2021 I pray, pray that you will be blessed by God I pray that I will be blessed by God in the midst of this surrounding darkness, in the midst of this gloom. As I said in my sermon that I released uh, for Midnight Mass, there is a light which cannot be quenched by the darkness. And if you know Jesus Christ, that light lives. It lives in you. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. And so that's it, friends. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep trusting. And I'll see you soon.